The story of Israel's exodus from Egypt has to rank as one of the most exciting and well-known stories in the Bible. Pharaoh's chilling plan to murder all of Israel's male children, Moses' narrow escape down the Nile River, the burning bush, the plagues, the angel of death, and the crossing of the Red Sea. And yet, as my guest today explains, it's also probably one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. Today I'm speaking with Ian Valancourt about why the story of the Exodus is so central to the Old Testament as a whole, and how the story of Israel's rescue from Egypt pointed forward to the coming of Christ in more ways than one. Ian is an associate professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary and the author of The Dawning of Redemption, The Story of the Pentateuch and the Hope of the Gospel from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. It's great to be here, Matt. Thanks yeah. so much for having me. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the Exodus today, the story of the Exodus, Israel's escape from slavery in Egypt. And it's obviously an important story that many of us who have grown up in the church would be pretty familiar with. We know the story. It's illustrated in every children's Bible we've ever picked up. Um, but you argue that it's it's really foundational to the whole Bible in a pretty profound way, maybe in a way that we don't always fully grasp. Unpack that for us a little bit. Why is the Exodus so important for all of Scripture? Well, first of all, it's it's the greatest act of redemption in the entire Old Testament. So when it, when Yahweh ushered Israel out of Egypt, he accomplished something. He accomplished the impossible hmm. and delivered his people out of slavery, out of bondage, and eventually gave them their own land. So that's the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. Later on in the um, exile, the loss of kingship, the loss of land, the loss of temple. The prophets were prophesying and casting the coming deliverance as a second exodus. Mm. They're casting it in a similar light as the exodus. And ultimately, that's that. those hopes are unmet at the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament. Mm. But then we meet Jesus and the New Testament casts Jesus as fulfilling that promised second exodus promised in the prophets. Hmm. So that's why the chapter in the book is called Exodus, Redemption Accomplished and Foreshadowed, Hmm. because it's also foreshadowing the coming return from exile that's ultimately accomplished in in Jesus. Yeah, theologians, Bible scholars will often point to the Exodus as paradigmatic for the rest of the Bible. There's all these other stories in the Bible that sort of, how would you describe it? They mirror or they sort of reflect some of the same basic ideas from the story of the Exodus? Yeah, they, they use similar language. They, they cast what's coming in the light of, mm. and part of that is we're simple people, and God speaks to us where we're at. Mm. And, but I'm going to do this great thing again, yeah. and it's actually going to be bigger and better. So we go from Abraham is sort of the beginning of the people of God, would yeah. you say? And then, and then uh, re- refresh our memory. How did they actually get to slavery in Egypt? Okay, I'll just back up. And Genesis 1 to 11 is lots of years of world history yeah. and you know ancient history. And then from Genesis 11:27 to the end of the book, we've got four generations in one family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12, mm. 12 sons of Jacob. Culminating in, in Joseph then. Yeah. Uh, well, Take Judah. Judah. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph <laughs> is the one we think of when it comes to going to Egypt. But you say that the focus is still on Judah as the yeah. the, the heir. Yeah. Ultimately, it's the 12. And yeah. Joseph's super important. Mm. Um, Stephen mentions Joseph in Acts 7. 
as pivotal. And of course, he's super important, but he's best supporting actor. <laughs> I, I would say that because Judah is in the line of Christ yeah, and because of the way the end of um, Genesis flows, yeah. Judah is the one that's kind of emerges as the leader, um, as a carrier of the blessing mm. and ultimately the lineage of the Messiah. Yeah. But anyway, so we've, we've got the story there and then we've got a bit of a reverse exodus that happens um, at the end of Genesis because there's famine in the land. Mm. Jacob and his 11 sons are starving. And ultimately, Joseph, who they don't know is alive, um, is in Egypt and he's blessing with grain. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, at the end of the day, they're brought to Egypt and they are saved from starvation. Yeah. What do you make of, I've heard some Bible scholars argue that actually the decision of Joseph's actions to bring his family to Egypt and the decision of Jacob to take his family to Egypt was was a bad decision, that the text actually portrays that as a, a, a negative thing leading to ultimately slavery. Do you buy that? Is that supported, would you say, in the, the biblical text? I don't buy that. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not of that school. Have, have you heard that kind oh, of yeah. thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't name names, but... Uh... <laughs> Um, no, I, 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 people I really respect and in fact have my students read mm. and there's like this, here's, here's a point I disagree, but this is an incredible book. Yeah. Talk like that, but you've got this, some people think there's a downward spiral in Genesis mm. ending in Egypt, the grave, but I see this trajectory of covenants, um, you know, Abrahamic covenant, mm. you know, creation, Noah, Abraham, those are pretty high points. I don't think that's a downward spiral. And then at the very end of the book, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And so... And by that, he's kind of... The good he's referring is the fact that now he can bring all these people to Egypt and save them. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, even Joseph didn't foresee what was coming. Joseph saw that a lot of people are being saved from starvation. Mm -hmm. His family is being saved from starvation. He would have understood something of covenant because of his lineage. Yeah. So that's hugely significant for him. But he didn't see Messiah and you and I sitting sitting here today as believers in Jesus um, as part of the fruit of that. And so I, I see Genesis ending on a, I'll say a pensive high note mm. that there's this salvation and and there's this there's a sense in which we can trust Yahweh. But it's pensive because it is true in Abraham, Abram had failure of faith, so he went to Egypt yeah. when there's a plague, there's already, when there's a famine. There's, there's already a little bit of a pattern, and we see that come back in Scripture of God's people leaving the promised land, going to Egypt, going to Egypt for some kind right. of salvation. So you don't think any of that, though, is at play in the I think story. there's a pensive high note. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> this isn't the way it's ultimately going to be, mm. This, but there is... This is from God. God intended it for a good. And so God's in this. Yeah. But we got to get back. Hmm. And so that's the story of the Exodus later. Is there any hint in the story of the Exodus or elsewhere in Scripture that Israel is responsible for the fact that they became enslaved in Egypt? That they, because again, so often we see in the prophets later that uh, this idea that the slavery that God is going to, to put people under is a result of their own rebellion, their hard heartedness. Do we see any indications of that being the cause of uh, why Israel became slaves? No, quite the opposite, isn't it? It's mm. um, God's people were being under, living under his blessing, so yeah. they were multiplying. multiplying. And Egypt 
we either enslave these people or we get overrun by them. And, you know, a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph arose and dot, 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 right? Yeah. So, yeah, quite the opposite. Yeah. So that brings us then to the story of Moses. Yeah. And so, uh, again, help us understand this story is, again, one that we're so familiar with, but uh, there are so many little details that I think have a lot of significance and meaning as we kind of dig into them. And you argue that there is uh, a really deeper significance to how even the story of Moses fits into the broader narrative of the Exodus and the story of Scripture. How, unpack that a little bit for okay, us. Okay, well, first of all, I'll mention that we are anticipating an Exodus already because of Genesis 15 and God's covenant with, with Abram. Mm. And so that's another thing I'll mention about the end of Genesis. We're anticipating that there's going to be an exodus. So that's another reason. We know God's not going to leave his people in that's this right. slavery state. That's right. And then when we meet Moses, okay, chapter one of Exodus casts a big picture. Here's what's going on with God's people. And then chapter two narrows down to one family. And when we see that happening in scripture, maybe this is an important person. Uh, that's another pattern that we kind of see That's a repeated. pattern we see repeated mm. in the way... Um, God tells his story of redemption in the Bible. And there's this obstacle. Often the obstacle is a wife who can't have kids. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the obstacle is a Pharaoh who's going to kill every baby born to the Jews, every male. And so his which effectively cuts off, it goes back to this their fear, which is mm -hmm. they're they're growing, they're spreading, there's more of them. And so by killing all the men, that allows them to sort of cut that off. That's right. And by the way, that's going to come up again in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And when Jesus is born. And so that's a little teaser hint yes. that Scripture, God, in order to communicate well to us, makes sure that he casts things in a similar light. Yeah. Just to see, oh, I can see a pattern here. There's like a rhyming to Scripture sometimes. Yeah. And, and he, he wove that into history in his inspiration of the authors of Scripture to record that history. Mm. You know, they interpret history for us theologically, and this is what yeah. they, they draw that out to show us. So another question I've always had about Moses and why God chose to do things in a certain way, and I wonder if there's something in the text that would help us understand that. I think we, we, all, we all understand the idea of Moses kind of is raised up, used by God as a, as a deliverer figure, uh, leading the people of Israel, his own people. Why, though, did God uh, write the story in a way where he is actually brought up in Pharaoh's own house, raised by Pharaoh's own daughter in this kind of position of privilege, but then, but then is pretty decisively kicked out by choice, sort of not by choice, but he kind of then is, leaves the house. What purpose does that serve in the story? Well, one purpose is irony, right? Mm. You know, he's saved by Pharaoh's daughter from drowning. From her own dad. From her own dad. And then she pays his mom to nurse him. Yeah. And so that's the beginning of it, right? Yeah. Is, that, is that kind of, are we meant to read that and see, wow, look at how God is working even through this evil to accomplish his good purposes? Is it like, you know, a sort of a, another version of the story of Joseph in a sense? Yeah, in a sense. And then he would have had every privilege, but he also would have had an elite education. I think is what Stephen in Acts 7 talks about Moses being trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, and that would have prepared him for yeah. the task of writing the Pentateuch. Are we, are we supposed to assume that uh, the other Egyptians, that Pharaoh and others, knew he was a, an Israelite, a, a Jewish person, or would they have thought he was an Egyptian? I, I would 
think that they would know he's a Jew. Okay. You caught me off guard. So. <laughs> I, I just, I, I've always wondered that. Like, was, was he like a second class citizen in the house of Pharaoh or was he embraced? As... He wasn't treated as a second class citizen. Yeah. So he was raised there. Yeah. He, and he, he was given every privilege. Power. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I really like D.L. Moody's kind of comment that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, and then 40 years learning what God can do with a nobody. Huh. Well, <laughs> I just think that's a pretty cool trajectory of Moses's life. Yeah. Those first 40 years of privilege. He's getting an elite education. He's in the superpower nation of, he's in the house of the most powerful person in the most powerful nation in the known world the of known the day. World. And that's going to come back when we get to the plagues where we see God humbling the most powerful person in the whole world. Yeah. And after he's humbled Moses for yeah, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, let's move on then to his, Moses' defection from Egypt. And, and again, that's another story that's always kind of confused me. As a reader today, are we supposed to be viewing what Moses did to protect his fellow Jew as a good thing? Or was that something that you know, we would rightly condemn Moses for? Just like how we're supposed to view the, his, uh, his killing of that Egyptian who was being harsh towards the Israelites. Uh, I don't know that the text portrays it as a good thing. I, it seems as though the text is is basically saying, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. Well, he would one day be a deliverer of God's people. But I would suggest in this instance, he's attempting deliverance in his own way and in his own timing mm. by murder and then hiding his body in the sand. But And the text plays that out. Word got out. Moses had to flee from Egypt. But... He's been called as a, as a redeemer, and he's been preserved as a redeemer. I'll, I'll mention, too, early as a baby, the Hebrew word used for the basket that he was putting in the Nile River is a teva. And the only other time that that word is used in the Old Testament is Noah's Ark, is a mm. teva. Huh. And so he's delivered through... And water is portrayed as chaos. Yeah. And the Nile River was not a trickle. Mm. You know, it's this rage, you know, it's big. And so he was delivered by means of a teva and then rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and all the irony with that. So he's been identified as the coming, the human means of deliverance by Yahweh. And he's been prepared for it. He's been tagged, you know, the teva and all. And the narrative so focus. The, the reader is kind of saying, okay, this, this is the guy. Yeah, this guy's special. And, you know, we got a whole chapter devoted to his birth and first 40 years in chapter two, and really his next 40 years as well. And then at the end of chapter two, it's, and God saw and God knew mm. the suffering of his people. And so that's just, a, I, I love that. That's just such a beautiful. Yeah, dig into that a little bit more. What, what are we, what should we, that's a, that's a verse that, you know, again, we might be tempted to quickly read through. But, but you in the book and even here, you kind of want to slow down and help us think about what that's saying. Well, the last couple verses of Exodus, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so I, I like to say God remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not like telling me to remember my wife's birthday, like recall it to mind. It's not like God forgot. 
it's not like God forgot. You know, when I was in pre-marriage counseling, you know, my pastor probably said something like, don't forget, spoil your wife on her birthday, (laughs) you know, instead of saying, remember her birthday. Yeah. I remembered. Yeah. I didn't do anything, but I remembered it was, (laughs) I, I ticked that box. No, I spoil her on her birthday, but God remembering his covenant, not only calling to mind and God doesn't forget, but This is the Bible's way of saying this is front and center. He's about to act. Mm -hmm. He's not a God who whose timing is willy nilly. Mm -hmm. He chooses to act in the perfect time that he has set. And this is a the Bible's way of communicating he's about to do that. Yeah. And then linking it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is linking this with the covenant commitment he made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and saying, Okay, this I'm about to act on that. And these people that have grown to, say, a million, I'm going to act on that. And then the, the last verse is just beautiful. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that Hebrew word knew is yada, and it's an intimate knowing. It's not just an intellectual understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's the question. Knew what? He was intimately acquainted. He understood what's happening, but he's intimately acquainted. And, and, and in the context, it would be like he's acquainted with their suffering. He understands that they're suffering deeply and he's about to intervene. He's about to intervene. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It is beautiful. He cares. So another scene then that happens right before the actual exodus, the plagues and all of that, uh, that, that further um, reveals who God is to his people is, of course, the burning bush. Mm-hmm. Moses comes and he's confronted with this bush. And it's, uh, again, another one of those stories that we all know so well. And it's in that context soon after that that God reveals his covenant name to Moses. Help us understand that. That's another one of those things that is often a little bit perplexing to us as Christians. We all might know, oh yeah, it's Yahweh. It means I am. But what does that mean? What what, what is he actually telling Moses? Well, he basically says, a literal translation of what he says, go and um, I will be who I will be, Mm. is a literal translation of what Yahweh says to Moses. And this is the name by which I'm um, known as I will be who I will be. And the, the idea is I am the never changing one. You can count on me. And if he's the God who's remembering and acting in light of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mm-hmm. covenants, he's not changing. And although the people's, and this is key for us today, we feel this, don't we? Although the people's life situation felt like God doesn't see and God doesn't know and God's not acting. Right, it's been 400 years. It's been 400 years. The opposite is actually the case. Mm. At the end of chapter two, we've got God seeing and God knowing. And then in chapter three, we've got him saying, I will be who I will be. I am the unchanging one. So that's like a, it's a further reaffirmation of this idea that I am the same God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will continue to be that God to you forever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a uh, fascinating way to do it. What is it about the idea that he's saying this is his name? What, what's, what's it, what he could he could have just described this? I will be to you as I have always been to your people. Um, but he he instead like inserts that into this idea of his name. Why does he do that? Well, in the book, I quote Bruce Waltke, and in I was really helped by his insight in Exodus three when God reveals his name when Moses asks God for his name. He's not asking, according to Bruce Waltke, for the meaning, uh, for God's name as a label, Mm. like you're Matt and I'm Ian. He's asking for the meaning of his name. And in response, we hear, 
I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm the unchanging mm. one. And later in chapter six, we've got a similar kind of thing going on. And I won't unpack all of that, but that's more the, what's the significance of the name of Yahweh? Mm. So we've got meaning and significance. And really in Genesis, I think it's 165 times the name Yahweh appears. So the name Yahweh is known before this. Exodus 3, Moses is asking the meaning of the name Yahweh. And in Exodus um, 6, it's the significance of the name Yahweh that's revealed. But the name Yahweh, I think it's about 165 times in the book of Genesis, huh. it occurs. And So we're not meant to read that as, oh, that's just because Moses is using that name kind of retroactively, but that wasn't actually what they would have Some people God. say that, but when I dig into the text, you know, there's Genesis 4.26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Mm. It would be pretty hard for Moses yeah. to say, I'm inserting the name Yahweh here. Yeah, right. It, 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 the text is actually saying, at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to do a sidebar here for our listeners. In our English Bibles, we see the Lord, and Lord is all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And... That is a signal for us that it's the Hebrew name Yahweh. Hmm. And why do our English Bibles so often do that? Well, they're following, there's a couple things. They're following convention in some ways. It began with Martin Luther hmm. when he was translating the Bible into German. Um, he translated Herr, I believe all caps for Yahweh. Oh, okay. And capital H, capital E, lowercase r, lowercase r, I believe for Adonai. And so that was a signal that he's doing yeah. it. But there's uh, Jews today don't pronounce the name of Yahweh. And yeah. so talking about the early commandments. Yeah. Um, Isn't there also a connection to the Septuagint, the, the Jewish, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jews in Jesus' day would have had access yeah. to and used? They're, they're translating it kurios. Yeah, as Lord. Lord. Yeah. So there's that. But... It's his name. It's the covenant name of it's God. It's the covenant name of God. So when I'm doing my personal devotional Bible reading, in my head when I see the Lord, I read in my head Yahweh mm. to remind myself this is the personal covenant God. Yeah. And he's the unchanging God. I can count on him. And this is his covenant name. And so when we read the Old Testament like that, this begins to jump off the page. We as English speakers, we see the Lord and we see a title. Well, that, that has absolutely no bearing on any meaning. But when we see at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Wow. Okay. And then throughout Genesis, the name Yahweh is used, but Yahweh actually says to Abram, and Yahweh appeared and said, I am Yahweh. So he's quoting Yahweh saying, I am Yahweh. Mm. And then the people in Genesis are speaking, oh, Yahweh. So direct address from Yahweh to people, from people to Yahweh, and also that 426. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Mm. I would suggest, though, and others with me, you know, Bruce Waltke and others, that in Genesis, El or Elohim, just the generic God, what we say is God, and in the context, as Christians, we're talking about God, we know who we're talking about, and the same with the Old Testament. That's the more prominent name used. And we and so when places are named Bethel, it's Beit B E T H is the Hebrew word for house, and Ale 
is the short form for Elohim, which is God, so house of God. Mm. And so we've got these place names named house of God. We've got, you know, the name God being used a ton. And, but the name Yahweh is used and known. But the full, the full meaning and significance of the name Yahweh, according to Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, has not yet been revealed mm. until the most monumental event in the Old Testament happens, which is the exodus from Egypt. And then after that, you know, you have these yahs at the end of people's names. Elijah, Elijah. Huh, so those are all yah. hooking into Yahweh. God's name. Yeah, Elijah is my God is Yahweh. Uh -huh. And Adonijah, and so in our English it's J-A-H, but it's, in Hebrew it's Yah yeah. at the end. Oh, wow. And so this is more prominent, yeah. So let's let's jump ahead then to the the actual Exodus proper in the plagues. So we all again know these stories: water to blood, frogs, lice, you know, death of livestock, livestock, all these things. And you argue in the book that each of the plagues, in different ways, represents a return to quote pre-creation chaos. What yeah. are you getting at with that? Well, basically, if Egypt is going to oppress. Yahweh's special covenant people, Yahweh is going to, in a temporary and piecemeal way, in a, in a sense, he's flexing his muscles and saying, look what I can do. You think you're the greatest superpower of, the, of today, but I'm Yahweh. And John Curd has a chart that I reproduce in the book with permission and really helpful where he, where he links the different days of creation to different plagues. Hmm. And, you know, Day one, light created out of darkness. Plague nine, darkness prevailing over light. I'll just do one more. Day two, waters ordered and separated. Plague one, chaos by changing water to blood. Hmm. And he goes down and... Just kind of undoing the days of creation in these different... In this temporary and yeah. piecemeal way. And so Genesis 1-2 is, and the earth was tohu vabohu, is formless and empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And then it jumps into the days of creation. And the first three days are forming the formless and the next three days are filling the emptiness. And, but in the plagues, there's this temporary and piecemeal return to pre-creation chaos. If you're going to do that, I'm going to do this. And it, and it climaxes um, with the death of um, the firstborn son. Mm. That humanity created in the image and likeness of God is the crowning climax of creation. And you, Pharaoh act as though you are a God and you're worshiped by your people as a God. But if you're going to oppress my people, I'm going to kill the firstborn in every, in, across your entire land, including your firstborn son who would have been Pharaoh. And so it's sobering, but it's awesome that that power is working for his people. It's also a link back to creation that creation is not the first, lots of stuff happened that we don't know about. Right. You know, we don't know what Moses had for breakfast before he confronted <laughs> Pharaoh. We don't know if snakes had legs before the fall into sin. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot, tells us all we need for life and godliness. Mm. But it begins with creation to show that God's not a regional deity. He's overall. Which is which is how much of the world back then thought about their gods. Right? Yeah, they're, they're, God's kind of ruled over certain areas. They're localized. And they they vie with each other for power, but there's only one, um, according to the Bible, mm. and he is over all. And so by doing this, he's saying, I am that God, and I'm going to get my people out. 
So pretty yeah. beautiful. So then maybe speak a little bit now more to the thing you've been hinting at and kind of alluded to a little bit throughout. We see these echoes of the Exodus throughout all of the Bible, but especially in maybe culminating in the life and ministry of Christ. So what are a couple of those connections to Christ and his life and death and resurrection that that we should see as distinct connections back to this story? Okay, yeah. So I'll just mention that the prophets, you know, they're promising restoration for repentance under the terms of the covenant. And so they're looking back and seeing Deuteronomy 28 and 30. And Deuteronomy 31 and 10, it says, Deuteronomy 28 is blessings for covenant keeping. The end of the chapter, most of the chapter is curses for covenant breaking, which will include exile from the land I'm about to give you. But in chapter 31 to 10, what do you do when you're in exile? And the very one that you would approach has, is the one who cast you out because of your own sin. Mm. And Deuteronomy 31 to 10 teaches restoration for covenant repentance. What you do is you approach that very God. He's the God of the covenant in a repentant, humble way and give yourself to him and say, I am yours. I'm going to live in light of who I am in, in a sense. You've mm. redeemed me. And there's this promised restoration. And that promised restoration in the prophets is cast as a second exodus. Mm. And so Isaiah 11, 1 to 16 is one example of that. But that never was accomplished in the Old Testament. Um, you think of when the foundation of the temple was laid in the book of Ezra, the younger men were rejoicing and saying, for he is good for his asset, his steadfast love endures forever. And the older men were crying. Now, these older men weren't entitled snowflakes saying, no, I want bigger and better. <laughs> I'm used to more opulence. No, they were listening to the prophets, first of all, like Ezekiel 40 to 48. The second temple, the new temple is going to be bigger and more glorious than the first. And they remembered the old temple and they saw this pathetic thing. Mm. It's way smaller. Yeah. So that's an indication for us that we're still waiting. So yes, the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra is something massively to celebrate, but it's not what's hoped for yeah. and what's been promised. And the other key is Second Samuel 7, there's always going to be a king reigning on the throne of David. But in the return from um, exile, this kind of beginning of a second exodus, yes, but there's no king anymore. And they don't have that proper king. And people vie for that. But it's not until Jesus is born as king of the Jews. Where's the one who would be born king of the Jews, you know? And who would die as king of the Jews? What, what did the sign say on his cross? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Mm. And then who was raised from the dead, conquering death for us, who ascended to heaven and in line with Psalm 110.1, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, mm. reigning until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So there's that, Jesus fulfilled that. Yeah. And so that's one kind of mess messianic thing. Two scenes I'll draw out from the New Testament. Um, at the Last Supper, Jesus was eating with his disciples. Now, he wasn't just coming over for a potluck or he wasn't even coming over for someone's famous steak dinner. This was a Passover meal he's celebrating. And that's, that's right out of the Exodus. And, and the Passover is, is remembering that on the night that the firstborn sons of Egypt were killed, 
um, the angel of death passed over the houses with blood on their doors. We didn't get into that, but yeah. it's in the book. And so that the people of God were supposed to celebrate this Passover every year. And it's not a, not a, you're saying it's not a coincidence that Jesus celebrates this, the, you know, the pinnacle of the Jewish, the Jewish year right before he goes. To no, his... he's remembering the Exodus, mm. but he changes it. He says, this is my body and this is my blood given for you. Which is saving you from death. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Ezekiel 36, this new covenant that's promised in the Old Testament. This is the new covenant in my blood. Mm. I'm fulfilling that. And it's a um, better exodus. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's what the exodus ultimately foreshadowed and pointed to. And we got this other scene in, in Luke and, um, you know, the transfiguration in Luke 9, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white and he's on the mountain. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. This is one of those perplexing scenes yeah. that we don't always know what to do with. He's peeling back his glory and revealing it. And he's talking to Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, the first two thirds of the Old Testament. But there's, this, there's a verse in verse 30 of Luke 9. Moses and Elijah appeared, spoke with Jesus of his coming departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that word departure, the English word departure, is translating the Greek word exodus. Hmm. That's how it's pronounced. And so they're talking to Jesus. I would suggest that's meant to be a front and center link, hmm. that he's a, he's, his coming exodus is happening. Yeah, he, he's and about to accomplish this exodus. He's about to accomplish this exodus in Jerusalem. Wow. And you think about the doctrine, theologians talk about the doctrine of union with Christ. When I turn from my sins and trust Christ, I'm united with him in his death and resurrection. Therefore, his exodus that he accomplished it for me, mm. and he's delivered me from sin, Satan, hell to this glorious inheritance yeah. of the saints. It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, what a beautiful story. And I know there's so many other connections in the life and ministry of Jesus to this foundational story that we, we can't get into today. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to oh. walk us through this incredible story in our Bibles. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a joy. That was Ian Valancourt on The Exodus. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Dawning of Redemption, The Story of the Pentateuch and the Hope of the Gospel. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and then leaving us a review. That really helps. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.